the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to leave, listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. When I was around 10, my oldest sister was dating a young man that my parents did not particularly care for. And they did not keep this a secret. This was a topic of conversation at dinner many, many times. And so we all knew this. But one day, my mother and I were out in the front yard. I don't know what we were doing, but I know it was in the front yard. And my sister came out and said, can I go up with this young man? And my mother hesitated for quite a while, and she said, I guess so. And so my sister went bebopping back in, to, in the front door to get ready for her date, and my mother said a disparaging word against her boyfriend. And my mother looked me in the eye and said, don't you go tell her that. So what did I do? I go around in the back the back door and I go into our bedroom and I tell my sister word for word what my mom said. And as my sister, and then I went back out to where my mom was. As my sister left with her boyfriend, she, had, she was crying. And my mom said, you told her, didn't you? And the look she gave me was such disappointment. And that was when I first realized what sin was, and I was part of it. Sin is something we try not to talk about. It's something that we try to hide. It's kind of a touchy subject, and yet the Bible talks about it in almost every book. All 66 books of the Bible, there's something about sin in it. We have the story of an Adam and Eve who just did exactly what God told them not to do, just like I did as a 10-year-old. And we have the story of Moses that killed the taskmaster. We have the story of David, King David, who saw this beautiful woman and just had to have her. And we have Judas, who wanted to move the revolution against Rome along a little further, and so he sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So what is sin? The Hebrew word avera is often used for an English word sin, but it means transgression. That's a better translation of it. 
The Greek word for sin in the New Testament is harmatia, which literally means missing the mark or failure. And this word comes from the sport of archery. I don't know if you all have ever shot a bow, but it is not the easiest thing, and lots of times it does not even get close to the target. That's when I do it. Um, and that is what this definition of sin is about, missing the target, not even coming close to it, falling short. Thomas Burton describes sin as the refusal to be what we were created to be, the children of God and images of God. Rosemary Redford Ruther defines sin as a distorted relationship with God, another human being, the earth, or even oneself. A distorted relationship with God or another human being. I think a distorted relationship or a breaking of a relationship is what the writer of Matthew is talking about in this scripture. And it's certainly what I did as a 10-year-old. You understand this text. I'm sure you all understand this text, that you have this person that you thought was your friend or your church member that you have a relationship with, and all of a sudden, they have done something, acted in an uncaring way, but wait, let's call it what it is. They have sinned against you. You know that feeling. You want revenge. You want to tell everybody what that good-for-nothing ex-friend has done. And how dare they do that? You are out for blood. You want everybody to hear it. You tell your coworkers. You tell your Sunday school class what that person did. But Jesus says, wait. Take a breath. Count to ten. And remember... This is about bringing the sinner back into the fold of the church, writing the distorted relationship back into the right relationship. In other words, trying to reconcile the relationship. As Jesus taught and preached, he emphasized loving God and loving neighbor. Now Jesus says, go to that person directly. Don't talk to anyone else to gain support from one another, for you are supposed to Love your neighbor. Go to your, that person that has broken the relationship with you. Go to them and talk to them now. Given that the goal is relationship, it makes sense to go talk to that person. Jesus says, if the member listens to you, well, you've gained a friend again. You have smoothed over the, over the relationship. It is reconciled. Unfortunately, life can get complicated. At least that's been my experience. Especially when another person's guilt is raised. Conflicts are, by nature, volatile situations. It doesn't take much for a chasm to appear or a disagreement to widen, given human pride. Even when both parties are acting with principal intentions, misunderstandings frequently occur and disputes can quickly escalate. Have you ever been in that situation? How do you do? How do we deal with sin? In this scripture, Jesus says if a relationship cannot be 
repaired by first going to the party that has sinned against you, the one that has broken the relationship, then get one or two witnesses to go with you. Now, those two witnesses are not there to be on your side and to stand up with you. The two or three of you say, you've done wrong and this is what you need to do. We are on this person's side. As it's, they're, of course, on my side. So, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying to take them with you so that when you begin to talk, there is a witness as to how the discussion went. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to think I am being very reasonable, and sometimes my remarks come out a little snarky or sarcastic, but that's just me. I'm sure it doesn't happen to you. But those two witnesses can say, uh, you know, you need to calm down. You need to listen to each other so that when you discuss it later, your memory is not distorted. The goal of the process is always reconciliation. But there are times when that's impossible. Sometimes there's no admission of guilt, no move toward reconciliation, not even when the whole church is calling for your reconciliation, the relationship remains distorted and broken. In such a case, then, Jesus advises to let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Wow. Didn't think I'd hear Jesus say that. Is Jesus saying to bring them up in front of the church and have them confess their sins and then we shun them? I don't think so. How did Jesus relate to tax collectors and Gentiles? He loved them. He loved them unconditionally. He was famous for that. Jesus never gave up on them, always reaching out, always hoping for reconciliation. This action of never giving up, always reaching out, is the theological term grace. God never gives up on us and always gives us grace, that unearned, unmerited favor and love of God. Therefore, we are to extend grace to others as well. As a 10-year-old, I certainly received grace from my sister and my mother, of whom I tried, probably not really consciously, but I broke their relationship, and I broke their relationship with me too, and yet I received unconditional love for the rest of my life from them. And because of grace was shown to me, I tried to be I try to be a better person. Even to this day, if I, and my mouth always, my tongue gets me in trouble, and I say things before I think, and when I know that I have hurt somebody's feelings by the look, you know, you can tell by their shoulders going down, that look of hurt, I know I need to make amends. I need to reconcile with them. Just as I know that when I do things that I shouldn't, when I sin, I believe God feels that way if you put human emotions into God. God is disappointed in us when we break relationship with each other. 
In the Wesleyan tradition, grace is one of the most important theological concepts. We understand grace to begin before we even are aware of God's love and mercy, and we call that prevenient grace. As we become aware of God's unconditional love and how our sin distorts our relationship with God and others, we move to another stage of grace called justifying grace. Sanctifying grace draws us toward the gift of Christian perfection. Wesley described sanctifying grace as the heart habitually filled with the love of God and neighbor and as having the mind of Christ and walking as Christ walked. Now the flip side of this scripture is when we are the ones that have wronged someone. In Matthew 5, the writer of Matthew writes, so when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. In the scripture for um, Matthew 18, we're talking about when someone wrongs you, sins against you, but in this scripture from Matthew 5, it's the other way around. It's when we have sinned against another. In other words, you're not the victim this time, you're the perpetrator. The remarkable thing about these two passages is that Jesus says to do the exact same thing, to go reconcile. Don't wait. Don't wait for someone to say, I'm at fault. Don't wait for you to let it harbor and go, oh my gosh, I have really wronged. I have done this terrible thing. And I, I feel that, you know, that spot in your stomach that just feels like butterflies and you can't get over it. Jesus says, go, go to that person immediately. But sometimes it doesn't happen, does it? We have times where there's the, why should I be the first to make the first move? I wasn't at fault. It's the other person who got, has to reach out to me. And that's how feuds get started. Remember the Hatfields and the McCoys? Nobody wanted to take responsibility and they can't even remember what the problem was. If you follow Jesus' advice in these two passages from Matthew, then the sort of feuds will not happen. Whether you're the injured party or whether you're the one who injured your friend, don't put it off. Just go reconcile the relationship. In doing so, you not only offer the other person a profound inner peace in the Lord, but you also claim that inner peace too. Here's another way to look at it. Two parties in a relationship are sitting on, okay, two different sides of the sanctuary, okay? It's like a table, the negotiating table. They're sitting on two sides of the table. You're, you're negotiating with this side and you're trying to get things right again. And as long as they remain on separate sides, it's us versus them. Each party says, us, it's on my side of the table. Them, 
is over there and them's got to make the first move. Reconciliation's never going to happen as long as it remains us versus them. Something and somehow a third element has to be introduced and that element is to see that isn't you are the problem and they're not the problem. The problem is the problem. The problem has to be introduced, not that you're horrible, not that you're horrible, but the problem has to be looked at and tried to reconcile between the two. Imagine the problem being a big box of jigsaw puzzle. Say 500, 1,000 you never get done, but maybe 500. And so this side over here is putting together the sky, maybe the, the clouds. This side over here is putting together the grass. And in between, there's the flowers and the barn and all those other, and a lake, I'm sure there's always a lake, and a jigsaw puzzle. And pretty soon, you know, it's been really quiet because they're working to put the pieces together. And as they have completed, maybe the outline, you know, the edge pieces, that's where I start. And they see over there on this side, this side sees a blue piece, and they walk over to the other side of the table. They come over to this side to get that piece, to put it so that they can complete that square. And then pretty soon, they start talking to each other because now they are figuring out that the puzzle is the problem. They're not the problem. It's not us against them. It's a us versus us to reconcile. Us versus us, us has to be transformed from us versus them. It's the only way reconciling, reconciliation ever happens. As we use theology for living in the next three weeks, remember that Christ's goal is always reconciliation. The good news is that we have the Holy Spirit, the advocate, to help us through the process of discerning how to do it. And we have God's grace always available to us. May it be so. Amen.